Magnolia City, Bayou City, Space City. Houston's had a lot of names over the years, but my personal favorite, and likely the longest, <laughs> is one of its oldest, the place where 17 railroads meet the sea. Today on Gulfstreams, we're discussing Houston's environmental and urban history. Why is Houston where it is? How did it get here? Why did it build out the way it did? And knowing that, where should we go from here? I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Deluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Today we have a special conversation for you. I'm joined in the studio by Bryson Kistner, a PhD candidate who studies environmental history at Rice University, and additionally, two outstanding student researchers, Jaden Bray-Boyce and Sienna Yen, are joining for us for a roundtable discussion on environmental and urban history around Houston and what's going on. Um, Bryson, Jaden, Sienna, welcome. Thank nice you. To be here. Hi. <laughs> Great. All right. So just to start us off here, Bryson, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, let, let's go back to the very beginning. Why is Houston here? Why, why is there a city where it is? The most important thing to know about Houston as a place is that it is an accident, more <laughs> or less, especially as we think of it as a city, a modern, big, urban, commercial metropolis. Houston was never really meant to be this. The people who lay out the plans for Houston in the late 1830s, right after Texas had left Mexico, uh, were a bunch of boosters. They had the idea of building a city as a way for them to make money off of selling <laughs> land to people. And if you look at the original advertisement from these boosters, who were all sitting cozy in New York and other East Coast cities, by the way, that is very important to know. They advertise, oh, yes, move to Houston, buy land here. We're building a town. It's so good. The water is so clean. The air is so fresh. You don't need to worry about mosquitoes or poisonous reptiles or anything. This is the best place on earth for a city. And then <laughs> they managed to convince people that was a fact. And then they named the city Houston because they think that maybe Sam Houston, who was the president of Texas at the time, uh, would like to have his ego stroked and move the capital of their little upstart pseudo-republic to the city. And Houston is like, great, let's move the capital there. And then people begin moving to Houston, and they realize that it is a swamp that is infested with mosquitoes, and they think, no. And then they <laughs> move the capital to Austin later on. But it's this original land booster thing accidentally starts a town that people actually stay in, and then it's simply cheap. It is a cheap place to be near other more important places Primarily Galveston. It so, is a so, suburb of right, Galveston. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> so let's go back for a second, because you, you've said boosters in New York. Mm -hmm. You mean the Allen Brothers, right? We're talking Allen Parkway. Brothers We're talking, yes. you know, yeah, okay. Their name is all over the city for that reason. Exactly. They so have, we have this... the Allen Brothers come in, buy yeah, up some land, yeah. and then let's bring people into it and do a little bit of a Greenland false advertising Exactly. Thing. And this is a big thing in Texas at the time, where you have these land companies of New England speculators who are buying mm. land that they have never seen before and then reselling that land mostly to lower middle class white Southerners okay. from places like Georgia, Tennessee, Louisiana that weren't doing too well economically in the Southern U U.S. These were people that had been hit really hard in a depression a few years prior. When are we talking specifically? Uh, early 1830s to mid-1830s, okay. there's some economic instability in the U.S. tied primarily to very, very fluctuating cotton prices. Okay. So these people are economically ripped off. A lot of banks take their land. They come mm. to Texas looking for a fresh start. And these speculators say, hey, we can make money off of selling land to these people. First, when Texas is part of Mexico, and then when Texas has kind of left Mexico, even though Mexico <laughs> says you really haven't left us. Uh, but they continue to make money off of these people who are coming in, and they see a lot of areas that are really good, cheap farmland. Mm. That's the real key, is that Texas has a lot of farmland, and not a, a lot of it is being used for farming. What's it being used for? Uh, depends on where. Okay. So you have a small Spanish-speaking population in Texas. Mostly they're in what is now the San Antonio-Victoria area. 
and then you have another small Spanish-speaking population in East Texas around the town of Nacogdoches. Okay. That's 5,000 people at most, though. <laughs> so we're still talking very frontier out here. It's... Very, very, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the term they would use it. Mexico mm -hmm. and Spain before it referred to Texas as frontera. Okay. And that doesn't mean frontier the way that you might think of it in like a John Wayne Western sense <laughs> where the land is being like actively contested between political bodies. Um, for Spain and Mexico as its successor state, the frontera was a line to be held. And you didn't want to really work that hard to advance the line because anything past that line wasn't worth advancing into by their way of thinking. Great. I think we should also, you know, I, I want to push back my own word <laughs> that I used in frontier, particularly because I want to push back further in history. Mm -hmm. You know, this is very Houston as the American city. We yeah. think of it Houston history. But there's a lot of history before that. You know, this has not been a place that simply came into being when people started parceling it up. So, so what happened? What existed in Houston prior? I was to this? about to mention Caroncola yeah. and other. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, there. But, yeah, yeah. Good. I teed you up well. <laughs> Jump in. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so yeah, we're talking about this line that Spain and then Mexico view, mm -hmm. and they perceive this line as being thin. That is a very accurate way of looking at it. Because on one side of the line, you have... What line are you talking this about? This frontera. Okay, okay. Um, which essentially, it, it's a line that goes from like Laredo to San Antonio to Nacogdoches uh, over to a town in Louisiana called Natchitoches. Mm -hmm. And you've got these 5,000 Spanish speakers, people that would later become known as Tejanos on the Mexico-Spain side of the line. And you have very politically independent indigenous polities, primarily the Comanche and the Wichita, who by the early 1800s are in a pretty tight alliance and relatively hostile to Spain and then hostile to Mexico on the other side of the line. But those 5,000 Tejanos are not enough to hold the line. So Mexico looks at who else is behind the line, indigenous communities that are inhabiting the area for the Houston-Galveston Bay area by the early 1800s, this is uh, Karankwa-speaking mm -hmm. communities, which are relatively politically connected to each other, south of what we now think of as like downtown Houston, all the way up to Galveston Island, and then further south along the coast. And the Karankwa are often given a horrible reputation. Uh, your middle school Texas history books will say, oh, they were cannibals. There's so little evidence for anything beyond rare ritual cannibalism, if that. Well, this is kind of the classic trap of, yeah. of the white man's history of Native peoples, right? Yeah. Because what, what white man's history of Native peoples in, in this area is either there was no one here and they didn't exist, or it's, oh, no, no, there were people here, but they were terrible, and yeah. they ate each other, well, the and there's with, no in-between. Well, the thing with the Karankawa is the Spaniards and the French speakers in Louisiana don't encounter them first. They encounter people that are actively fighting the Karankawa, <laughs> who are also indigenous first. And those other people are like, yeah, yeah, we hate them. So you should hate them too. And the Spanish are later on all too happy to keep hating the Karankawa for their own geopolitical reason. I think the best thing that tells you who the Karankawa were and are as a people, because there are still Karankawa people in Texas. They're organized out of Corpus Christi nowadays. Oh, there's a major tribal presence. Yeah. yeah. And there's actually quite a growing presence in Houston as well of people who are reclaiming that identity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the name Karankawa means... And it's not a word that the Karankawa used for themselves. It is a name applied to them by a different indigenous group. It means people who love dogs, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> that describes them pretty well. They were known for having these great, big, fluffy, kind of husky-looking dogs uh, that they had bred and were distinctive to their culture. And they were known for loving these dogs. And that tells you a lot about who the Karankawa <laughs> were and are as people. Uh, north of Karankawa territory, but still in what we now think of as Houston, mm -hmm. You have communities that belong to a cultural body that we now recognize as the Atacapa Ishak Nation, yeah. uh, primarily the Bidai Division and other Western, or in their terminology, Sunset Divisions of the Atacapa Ishak. And then you have smaller populations, probably still in the 1800s, that are speaking languages that are related to either through common ancestry or intermingling with uh, Sanaa or Coahuiltaco. 
And these communities, again, they still exist in Texas in some way, shape, or form. There's at least two bodies that are organized as modern iterations of the Quiltico peoples. Okay. And the Sana, it's a little less clear, but it's pretty clear that at least some Sana speakers later integrate into the Tonkawa Nation. And there are still Tonkawa people in Texas. And most Tonkawa people now live in Oklahoma because they were forced out of Texas. So yeah, the area we now think of as Houston, it's behind Mexico's Frontera line, but it's inhabited by people. And these people have been here for thousands of years. They just don't have any interest in being Mexican citizens and taking up a way of life that Mexico views as being socially and economically productive. And there's not that many of them by Mexico standards to begin with. So Mexico is like, okay, if we can't take these people and use them to hold the line against the Comanche and the Wichita, who are we going to get? And it would be really good if the people we get to do that can make us money. And they look at the southern U.S. They look at Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, places that are making money. And they say, okay, let's team up with some American speculators and businessmen to populate what will become Houston, what will become the rest of East Texas and South Central Texas with people from the US or from parts of Western and Northern Europe and we'll get them to come here. They will help us hold the line in Texas and they'll make money for us. And they'll make money for us by doing what they did in Georgia and Louisiana and Alabama and Tennessee and that is by commercial agriculture. And I was going to say, the thing I'm thinking here is big cash crops. What are these states? Big cash on? crops. And that cash crop is primarily cotton. Mm-hmm. There are people who are thinking maybe someday we'll experiment with like indigo or sugar cane, but it is cotton. It's interesting, yeah, because I mean, I think of Louisiana and the cash crop, there's really sugar far earlier than Yeah, it. yeah. The Texas coast is very accurately perceived as not being as good for mm-hmm. commercial sugar cane agriculture by Mexico and by the. Na- Uh, North American Anglophones, Mm -hmm. both the settlers and the business people that are making money as the intermediaries. Louisiana is, the southern half of Louisiana is just this big mass of mud and sugarcane does really well there. South Louisiana gets horrifically wealthy in the most horrific way off of sugar because, I mean, sugar is the most dangerous of the slavery plantation crops. Yeah. It is a horrific work process. It is very dangerous. One of the reasons they rely on enslaved labor is simply because you cannot pay people enough to do this work. Yeah, it's a really inhuman process. I would suggest uh, for for anybody who happens to be going to New Orleans or the area in the next uh, ever, (laughs) uh, you should go to the Whitney Plantation. Mm -hmm. It really does a remarkable job of walking you through the process of life for enslaved people's on a sugarcane yeah. uh, plantation. Really, yeah, it is It is gruesome. Mm-hmm. It'll be a long time before there is a profitable sugar economy in Texas. So what kind of profitable economy are we? So we're, all right, let, let's, let's get our timeline back yeah. together a little bit. I will say, Bryson, you're a historian whose expertise runs kind of between Texas and Louisiana. Yeah, my research specialty is the river that is now the border between Texas <laughs> and Louisiana. So right smack dab in the middle of it. And some of the reason we're, we're talking so regionally, though, is also there are really important regional things happening yeah. here. When we're talking about this early history, the, the you know, the borders are far less defined. There's there's a mm-hmm. lot more bleed on, on where these areas are and who's moving between them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, so back to, to the Allen brothers and our, our yes. more familiar founding of Houston. Uh, so what is the cash crop that the Allen brothers are interested in here? It is cotton. Cotton requires very, very little investment when you compare it to something like sugar because it is much cheaper to process. It is much cheaper to grow. You don't need as much mud uh, as you (laughs) need to grow sugar cane. It'll grow in much more of Texas. It'll grow cheaper in Texas. Are you telling me we don't have enough mud in Houston? I mean, if you compare us to New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Okay, but still, on the list of problems I have with Houston, lack of mud has not been on the list before. But 
you're getting to something important, which is Houston isn't actually good for cotton. (laughs) It's really bad for cotton. (laughs) The Allen brothers aren't selling Houston as a place to grow cotton. They're Mm. selling Houston as a place to process cotton. Okay. So the idea is that people living further inland from Houston on land that is drier, they themselves or the people that they have enslaved and therefore exploit will be the ones producing cotton further inland. Then you will take it to Houston, which is where the dry land meets the muddy land of the coasts. Mm. And you put Houston where it is is because it is on that divide between the muddy coast and the drier, more agriculturally productive inland areas. And it's at the very edge of the wet, muddy, malarial coastlines (laughs) because people don't actually want to live on the coast. They want to live as far away from the coast as possible. If you put Houston on that dividing line, you can gather up all the cotton that is being grown further inland, and then you can put it on a wagon, or you can put it on a small boat, and that boat will go up and down Buffalo Bayou. Later on, you can put it on a train. Okay, this is what I wanted to get to, right? Like, we are sitting here, and we we finally hit on, you know, you've got the processing, and I'm I'm already, like, tuning in, like, all right, we've got the ship channel. We've got, Mm -hmm. all right, Houston as processor is very much how we think of this city. Yes. Um, So, yeah, let's, let's skip ahead a little in time and jump to... When does Houston start to explode? When does it start to grow? Because I, I will, you know, foreshadow. You said railroad, and I got very yeah, excited. Yeah. <laughs> so you see railroads beginning to come to Houston right before the American Civil War. Okay. And those railroads are not going to the big southern cities that we think of, even by that time period, which would have been New Orleans, uh, La- Chattanooga, Atlanta, Savannah. They're all going to Galveston. And they're going from little towns that are growing cotton all across southeast Texas, and they're funneling that cotton to Houston. And then there's basically a direct line from Houston to Galveston, either by train or by boat, if you're going up and down Buffalo Bayou into Galveston Bay. And you take that cotton, you put it on a boat in Galveston Harbor, and from there you can take it to New Orleans or New York or all the way to Liverpool, where it (laughs) will be processed into cloth. And that cloth will then be shipped all over the world, all over Europe, North America, Latin America, even as far away as China. And it will be sold for clothing. And this mid-19th century period is when we're talking about Galveston's heyday, right? This is the immigration capital, Galveston days. This is the export capital, Galveston days. It is the city of Texas, far and away. Houston is a dinky little railroad depot suburb of Galveston. (laughs) When does that change? That... begins to see hints of change after the American Civil War. You get uh, railroad lines that are going from Houston to New Orleans by that time. So Galveston no longer has a monopoly on Houston business, and people in Houston are free to... There's also resistance in Galveston yeah. from building railroads. That's not something... No, Galveston want. wants to maintain its chokehold yep. on the economy of Texas. And Houston is kind of playing New Orleans and Galveston off against each other in the late 1800s. What really changes, though, and if you know (laughs) Texas history, you might be familiar with the story, is that Galveston get hit by a horrific hurricane in 1900. Thousands of people die, and there's varying estimates, and they range anywhere from 5,000 to 12,000 people die. Still widely considered the most deadly natural disaster in U.S. history. Most certainly, yeah. And it's so horrific because if you've never seen Galveston before, it is basically a big sandbar. Mm. No point on that island is very high. (laughs) And this hurricane is putting forward like 20 feet storm surges. The island ceases to be an island for quite a while. It is just seafloor during and after this hurricane. And with Galveston so devastated, people need to move. And the businesses that these people run and work for need to move. So where do they go? They go to the most important of Galveston's little dinky railroad depot suburbs. (laughs) And that is Houston. Now, they see Houston as having a lot of potential because not only are these all these railroads that are connecting Houston to real ports like Galveston or New Orleans, but Houston is, again, it's on the line between the muddy coast and the dry inland. And 
it's at the point where that line hits Buffalo Bayou. And Buffalo Bayou goes into Galveston Bay and then out into the Gulf of Mexico. And Houston is as far up along Buffalo Bayou as you can basically take a boat that is going to be able to handle Galveston Bay that isn't just a raft or a little tiny canoe thing. So people flood into the city, and the city then has to play catch-up. And that's what I mean when I said earlier that Houston is really an accident. Mm. Houston does not anticipate the hurricane. No one anticipates the hurricane. That's part of the problem. No one anticipated <laughs> the hurricane, and a horrific number of people die. But Houston does not anticipate becoming what Galveston had been. Mm. And because of that, land in Houston is very, very, very cheap. It gets more expensive because there's more demand for it, but it's still horrifically cheap compared to Galveston or New Orleans land prices. So businesses and people that can afford to own their own property as private residences, they gobble up significant swaths of land because it is to them very cheap. And the metropolitan buildup of the city begins to take on what is probably still Houston's most defining characteristic, and that is sprawl. <laughs> the other thing with the hurricane is it comes right around the time that people are beginning to find oil mm. in areas north and east of Houston. So the hurricane forces the export business of cotton and other cash crop things to Houston. City begins to boom. They begin finding oil in Texas. Houston's now the business center. The oil business comes to Houston on the footsteps of all that Galveston business. And it just reinforces a wave of humans coming to this city. What what kind of era are we talking about? This here? is the early 1900s, like okay. 1900 to 1910, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. So this is kind of the first Houston boom. Is that post-1900 era? Yeah, you could say that there were earlier booms, but they That's a stretch. <laughs> yeah, it's a stretch. That's a stretch. Yeah, the earlier booms were like 20 Irish guys showed yeah. up to work Houston's the railroad. Houston's going to have a number of booms. I would argue yeah. really hard to point at one that's not substantially in the 20th century. Yes, that's... I would concur. Yeah, <laughs> But yeah, it's, again, all this growth is accident. It is someone finds oil near Beaumont and a hurricane levels Galveston and the business needs to go somewhere. Houston is where most of the businesses already are. Mm -hmm. And it, it becomes this kind of gravity effect, you know, um, if a star system is like collecting asteroids or rogue planets into itself out in space, the collective weight of that star system grows. Mm. As the collective weight grows, its gravity well will grow and more things will get sucked in. And then the gravity well grows again and then the more things get sucked in. And it's not planned. Houston has never been planned at any <laughs> given time. You look at old pictures of Houston right after this boom, mm -hmm. like bird's eye, whether it's by a sketch artist or an early photograph. Um, there's some fun pictures of Rice University where we are right now that were made right after World War I by some dudes just flying around in a plane with a camera. <laughs> and we think of Rice nowadays as kind of being, we're not downtown Houston, but we're downtown Houston, right? We're kind of in the middle of everything. I mean, we got the medical center on one side, Midtown on another side. It's the center of this city in many ways, in part because no one actually goes downtown for anything except <laughs> Astros games. But you look at these early photos and depictions of Houston from above, and Rice is in the middle of nowhere. We are surrounded by fields on all sides, and those fields had been, well, it was too muddy to plant cotton, really. So maybe you could do some rice. Rice has begun taking off in Texas by this time. A lot of it's pasture land because it's just grass, and people let their cows eat the grass. Which is important, actually, because I, I, I do want to I want to pause and, and note, you know, the fact that there are vast tracts of what we think of now as Houston that were rice paddies, yes. which are literally flood zones, right? Yeah. <laughs> These are areas that are meant to be flooded. And so when we when we think, you know, when we turn to environmental history as a way of understanding our present, when we mm -hmm. think through these various issues that are facing the city today, front of mind post-Harvey for a lot of Houstonians remains flooding. Yeah. Certainly, we just had the hottest summer on record. Certainly, there are other threats that are happening right now that we've, we've been talking about for the last few weeks. But flooding is still a, a top-line issue for most people. 
and recognizing that, you know, with the exception of the heights, which is called the heights because it's 23 feet above everything else, you know, this this is a city that's pretty flat and in many places well-designed for flooding. It's not surprising that Houston and many pockets of Houston they're literally engineered to flood and we're, we're fighting this kind of long land history yeah. and need to be hyper aware of it when we talk about mm-hmm. the sprawl, which I think most people are vaguely familiar with. But do you want to throw out a definition for, for sprawl? Um, yes, but I want to touch on one thing yeah, first, yeah. which is what you talked about design, which is very true. Between the Allen brothers first selling people on the idea of moving here to this and building a little railroad depot for Galveston and that first boom uh, that landscape's natural predilection for flooding had been reinforced, mm. especially in the late 1800s after the Civil War when people really begin planting rice. They see that this area is prone to flooding, and they're like, okay, how can we make it flood more effectively? And that's how you make productive rice fields. You encourage flooding by rearranging the landscape a little bit. So when the boom happens and people begin gobbling up cheap land, some of that land is going to be rice paddy, and they don't bother undoing the work that rice farmers had done before. And that predilection towards flooding remains in the landscape. And it remains in the property values. And it right? remains it, in the property It's something value. that we think about today very much is if we look at where is the cheap housing in Houston – it's in land that we tend to know has historically flooded, which, mm-hmm. again, you know, Harvey is a benchmark for the city. Pre-Harvey, we can look at Kinder Survey annual reports about how people feel on these issues, and we see, you know, far less concern about moving into areas that are known to repeatedly flood, whereas post-Harvey, those numbers have changed dramatically and have actually remained pretty overwhelmingly. Folks are, are opposed to continually repurchasing homes in areas we know are repeat flooding areas. Mm-hmm. Back to your earlier note, yes, though, yeah. so, sprawl. sprawl. What yeah. is sprawl? <laughs> um, sprawl is like profanity. You know it when you see it. <laughs> it is just this urban design flaw where you simply keep building out and out and out and out. Now, so people in Houston are going to take that flaw word as, uh, as, as fighting words there. Well, Bryson. when the sprawl goes straight into a former rice paddy that is still designed to flood <laughs> seasonally every spring, uh, yeah, that's a flaw. <laughs> it's, uh, but the function of sprawl is to take advantage of how cheap land is. Mm. Like this is the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. People are one or two generations removed from farming in almost every case. And it's still a society that measures wealth and the display of wealth through real estate. So when you have people that have open land and they want to build a nice house to show off how good they have it, (laughs) they're going to buy a lot of land. And when they buy a lot of land, their neighbor is going to buy a lot of land. And the neighbor after them is going to buy a lot of land. And the neighbor after them is going to buy a lot of land. And as Houston grows, the land values don't really change that much when you measure for things like inflation. Hmm. In terms of it never becomes cost prohibitive not to sprawl in Houston. Jaden, I can see you have a question. Why don't you hop in there? Well, would you say for like in future land developments around Houston, um, do you think there'd be more efforts put in place to like mitigate, um, say, like lower income communities to affluent communities? Or will it keep going on the same path that it's been going with is or which is um, involving Houston's privatized politics? I, as I've said to undergrads that I teach, I tend to be a glass half empty person (laughs) when looking at the things I look at professionally. And what's been interesting about sprawl in more recent decades in Houston, and I'm not just limiting this to Houston. This is all over Texas. I'm from Austin originally, uh, and it's all over the United States where we're seeing that working against sprawl does not necessarily entail an urban design plan that is going to be 
financially accessible to people. And what do I mean by that? Like, yeah. We talked a lot about like <laughs> corporate inflation and mm-hmm. how that is playing a role in like how expensive eggs are at HEB or Kroger or wherever you do your groceries. Well, we've seen that in real estate ever since the 2008 crisis, much more so, especially in Texas. And unless you incentivize real estate development, it doesn't matter because we can talk about the perceptions of co- uh, customers, real estate customers on land and flooding and what they want to see in this city regarding land use, regarding the relationship between sprawl and flooding. But perhaps more so than any other market, real estate is one where the supply side has a horrific amount of power over the customer. And if you look at what is being built in the central areas of Houston, at least, this is not affordable housing. Yes, it's housing that is being built up. These are apartments that can fit hundreds of people, hundreds of families even, within their walls. And you might look at that at first and think, oh, this is a great way to combat sprawl. We're building up oftentimes in slightly higher areas and maybe we can move people out of the floodplains. Then you look inside of these apartment buildings. These are not meant to be affordable. These are meant to be what they call luxury apartments, which means that they are overpriced even for the middle-class people that work in finance downtown or in medical stuff down in the medical center. And if they're overpriced for those people that have to buy these apartments or more often than not rent these apartments because they don't have any other options that are feasible for them, they're certainly not available to people that are blue collar, that are working class, the people that are in those floodplains to begin with in Houston's current makeup. This gets into a problem that we often refer to as the missing middle, right? Yeah. In urban planning, where we think of, and to be fair, Houston has done some things that are really actually quite exciting. Houston, you know, and I, I think you have questions about zoning that we might get to in a moment, but right, Houston's lack of zoning, which we can complicate because Houston has plenty of regulations and rules that wind up enforcing some of the worst habits of zoning while leaving out the protections that zoning can actually afford to communities. In particular here, some of the issues that I'm I'm thinking about specifically are, you know, zoning actually can afford protections by saying, no, you can't build an industrial plant directly in the backyard of of local community members. There need to be distances for, for processing of chemicals. In particular, a major issue we've been seeing a lot of activists talk out about and, and address, and uh, Emily Foxhall, uh, who used to be of the Houston Chronicle, is currently of the Texas Tribune, did, did some really good coverage on this about a year ago, is an issue called concrete batch plants, right? And we'll, we'll definitely talk about that in a future episode, but the issue of, you know, making concrete directly in neighborhood communities. And and zoning could afford protections and does in some other places that prevent these kind of complexes being built in into directly into residential environments. Um, Now, the flip side of zoning, and and Houston still by and large opposes zoning, and I think with good reason, is zoning can be far too overly restrictive. Uh, We can look at zoning You know, if we look at it around the U.S., um, we see overwhelmingly single-family zoning that gets put in places into major, especially East Coast cities, where suddenly we look at you can't afford to build anything or you literally can't legally build anything other than single-family zones. And that's different from if we were to say take an international example of Germany and and turn our attention there for a minute, we see that actually small businesses are allowed or even, you know, major cities like Chicago and New York you have storefront businesses and then apartments that live above it. So you can go to your barber, you can go to your corner shop, you can have all the kind of things you would need on your block on your block. It also, you know, if we look at both these foreign and domestic kind of other big city models, we see where you know, there's a multitude of, of types of homes that are allowed. So we can have duplexes, we can have triplexes, we can have, you know, that, that that's what we mean by that missing middle, these other styles of, of housing that allow for more residents uh, in denser areas while still preserving a lot of that character. If you look at places like Chicago, there are some really wonderful row houses where everybody has their own home. They have a huge amount of character. You even have, you know, small backyards. Uh, and so you get this really wonderful kind of neighborhood feeling, but you're often 
also looking at, at far denser environments. And those are cases where zoning can be really, really effectively leveraged. Um, and so it, it, it's, you know, it's not a yes or a no. It's a, it's a good zoning can do really outstanding things for a community, and bad zoning can can make it really impossible for cities to do what they need to do to function. Um, and so I, I just want to draw attention to that. You know, we wind up with, uh, yeah, with a lot of rules and regulations about what kind of places can be built. And it forces, to some degree, developers into only being able to build luxury units and making anything. There needs to be a laxing of certain policies and rules that allow for affordable housing to be incentivized, to be buildable within that urban core. But this also gets to the sprawl thing, right? Because your question about, you know, the wealthy impacting the least wealthy Houston is, is becoming a kind of fascinating dichotomy as the urban core continues to densify to get more expensive, to have more traction of people moving in, and the far, far outreaches of the Houston area. And now we're talking about Fort Bend, we're talking about Katy, Sugarland, these areas that one time in Houston's history it would have annexed and it can't really do that anymore, and so they've moved further out. That land has remained in most places, cheaper, Mm -hmm. and especially for larger properties. And so you have this kind of hollowing out of the middle, where if we look at Houston's actual population, this is something that demographers are really concerned about in Houston, we have an issue of the actual population of Houston proper is static or is decreasing. Um, Not by a lot, by a few thousand people maybe, by, you know, not a massive margin, but it's this area outside that is expanding and booming and that urban core that is really skyrocketing. And that's creating this kind of dual issue of a whole belt of the city that's going to be seeing a kind of not only densification, but also a lack of property return, other issues that we associate with that that causes displacement, that causes lack of investment in these neighborhoods. And really, really critically, as we keep eating up all that land on the exterior, we keep eating into what you were talking about earlier with floodplains mm-hmm. and flood protection zones. And so the impact of people moving out to, to Fort Bend and Sugarland and areas that are eating up the prairie conservation areas, you know, we wind up building entire neighborhoods that we know are in water retention areas. And neighborhoods found this out to really dire effect in Hurricane Harvey when we had whole areas flooded. Um, and that problem is not going to go away if we just continue to eat up every part of the surrounding area of Houston. And it goes back to the half joke I made earlier about accidents. If Hurricane Harvey had happened in like 1910, 1915, when Houston has just had that first boom, Mm -hmm. would not have been that bad. The city is still tiny. It is a boom town, but it's still little compared to somewhere like New Orleans. But the problem is the accidental booms just keep coming. With every new major oil discovery, there's another boom. Uh, whenever someone invents AC in the mid-1900s, there's another boom. Whenever we begin moving uh, important military infrastructure here in terms of naval presence and air presence, there's another boom. When we move the space presence here, there's another boom. When we figure out how we can take oil from other parts of North America and South America and bring it into the Houston area and process it here, there's another boom. And every time there's a boom... Houston is caught flat-footed, and the whole sprawl thing continues again. And and I want to say that's the important part, right? Like, Houstonians listening are going to be like, yeah, we like the booms. We like economic growth. And there's an understandable reason for that. The problem is not Houston's success as a city. The problem is Houston's failure to account for its own success as a city. It's its failure and inability to learn to plan for how are we going to to get people in and into safe areas in an area that is inherently along the bayous, in floodplain zones, not safe for, for homes to exist. Yeah, we've had, at this point, more than a century where every few decades there's a major boom. Mm-hmm. We should have gotten used to this <laughs> by now, for lack of a better term. It's really remarkable. You can look through the population numbers of Houston over the 20th century, and it's it's really astounding to yeah. see almost every three decades at least doubling, If and, and especially when it goes from like 10,000 to 40,000. But, I mean, you're talking 600,000 people to like almost 2 million in a span of a few decades. It's yeah. really remarkable. Yeah, like uh, so my family's on my mother's side, that is, has been in Houston for a while. I think my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, moved here like 1920, no, 
1931, 32, maybe 34 at the latest, moves to Houston at that point. It's a town, but it's not a real city yet, even by the standards of Texas, which is not an urban place. In my grandmother's lifetime, Houston goes from 50, 60,000 people to more than a million. It goes from a city that is certainly not in the top 10 cities in the country to being the fourth largest city in the country. That's one lifetime. When she was growing up, you could get on a car in downtown Houston, and it probably wouldn't take you 30 minutes to see a cow. (laughs) And that's what it still was like when my mother was growing up in the suburb area that is now referred to as Spring or Spring Branch. Mm -hmm. And that's where my mother grew up. And right outside of that, there were cows when she was growing up. And now there's a whole second medical center out there and BP's <laughs> office buildings are out there or they were out there. I think they might have, I don't know if they sold them off actually. But yeah, and there's not only another suburb past that, there's three or four other suburbs <laughs> past that. My father grew up in Katy and hearing about Katy in the 70s is not a real thing to me. Yeah. <laughs> the idea of what he's describing in no way resembles what I can imagine Katie being, but people it's, it's in, remarkable. People in Houston in the 40s and 50s occasionally still saw wolves. <laughs> it's it's a different planet, almost, <laughs> it seems. And so I have to apologize here. Our, our recording equipment actually cut out at this point, and so we, we lost the tail end of this conversation, but I want to I go over some of the, the questions that were asked. One of our researchers asked a, a really great question about the future of Metro and thinking specifically about you know these rail histories and how they've impacted the formation of the city. And so we got into a conversation talking about um, various forms of getting around Houston and how we move through the city, and that brought up things like the historic nature of of the railroad, but also the current light rail and where Metro is going, which I will I will freely own. Bryson and I were, were pretty enthusiastic um, about Metro and walkability in Houston in general, uh, really noting that, you know, comparatively, parts of the city can be quite, you know, rate quite well on walkability, um, that the Houston Metro system has done really remarkable work, you know, for, for not having the, the kind of, you know, all any Metro office in the country will tell you they don't have enough money for what they need to be doing. But the Metro office in Houston in particular has just a remarkably difficult task. Um, When we think about just the size and the scale of Houston in particular, we're talking about the fourth, uh, sorry, the ninth largest geographic area um, for a city in the country. And that's counting places like Juneau and Sitka that have respectively like 8,000 people and 30,000 people living in them. Um, And so, of course, these Alaskan cities, you know, consume vast tracts of space, but they're also very, very small. And so they aren't good comparisons for, for Houston and for how large Houston is. It's really a remarkable task that Metro has to put together. Um, it's it's really quite incredible, and there's been remarkable work being done. A few years ago, there was a major overhaul of the bus network system that really improved rideability, that increased ride share. Uh, Metro has been a leader in many arenas, such as putting in electric buses, which is really really critical from an air pollution standpoint, as well as from you know dealing with carbon issues. And so I, I think Metro has actually been doing some fantastic work, especially given the limited resources they're operating with. At the same time, uh, I, you know, I was at one point saying I, I'm a cultural urbanist. Uh, I think about urban environments and culture. And so, you know, I, this is a cultural shift that needs to happen to some degree. Uh, when, when students particularly speak to me about, you know, oh, why doesn't Metro do this or why can't Metro do that? Um, Metro is set up in a way that is primarily rooted to taking people to and from work. Uh, it runs every 15 minutes during the week and on the weekends every half hour, hour, right? And if you don't have a vehicle, if you're living in the city and you need to get from place to place, presumably you actually want to go places on the weekend. Your life doesn't just shut down. And so the idea that public transit should only exist as a, as a means of getting to work is really troubling. Um, 
At the same time, you know, when we think about walkability, we see a real desire for both walkability and public transit, which absolutely go together. We see a real desire for these in Houston. Repeatedly, the Kinder Institute's annual survey has found that at least 50% of Houstons want to see a more walkable city. I would argue those are typically, you know, people in these urban core environments where they can understand, you know, walkability really matters. And we're going to actually have a segment from Siena in, in just a little bit focusing specifically on walkability, but as a part of a larger series of pieces about really thinking through urban futures in Houston. And we'll, we'll speak with some developers. We'll talk about, you know, what does accessibility mean in Houston? And certainly that means transit. Certainly that means uh, the ability to walk around and get to what you actually need to in your neighborhood. But it's also really important to remember Accessibility in terms of things, one of the things we brought up was was really centered around, you know, what happens if you have a wheelchair or a stroller? And we've seen uh, city across city, you know, this kind of long impact, the American Disabilities with Act, we found, you know, what's called the curb cutout effect, which is when you have to put in a curb cutout for, for folks who predominantly use wheelchairs, was really why this was first instituted. It benefits those with strollers. It benefits those pushing a, a trolley of goods up. It benefits those of us who just don't want to take a side a step off on us on a sharp step and so actually making our cities more accessible for everyone makes them better places for all of us as well and so in this this string of conversations around accessibility and and how we walk around places it's really important to think about public transit as well and the histories of Houston where what used to be a streetcar suburb which used to be how we would get in and out of town was the Heights, you know, the Heights, Montrose, these were the, the streetcar suburbs of days past. Now we have park and rides out to Fort Bend, to Katy, to the Woodlands. Um, and that's not a critique. That's not saying these are wrong. It's saying we need to address how do we think of transit getting to these people to where they need to go, especially in a place like Houston that is complex with a, a kind of urban core downtown that we all think of, but then also other urban cores that have found, you know, we, we often refer to as Houston as a city of three downtowns, that there's the medical center and there's also the Galleria area uptown. And that makes it very complex from a metro standpoint. All of this is to say public transit is only going to continue to grow in importance and how we think about it. And it's something that's really, really critical when we consider how people move through a space, how they engage with a city, and how we consider that to be livable, especially as we recognize that, you know, you, there, there are solutions to some of these climate problems, you know, and electric cars are often pointed to. Certainly electric cars are better from a carbon perspective, are better from an air quality perspective than, um, than our traditional vehicles. At the same time, from a traffic perspective, 700 electric cars, even if they're all self-driving cars, are still 700 cars. Um, and in these dense urban environments, that won't help with traffic. And so public transit not only is a, is a cleaner way of moving through a space, but it's also really, really critical to work on the traffic congestion issues that we're really thinking about in Houston. Because as we all know, especially in our in our post-pandemic reality, uh, traffic is a real concern and it's a real thing that continues to be thought out. One of our researchers brought up issues of, you know, how, how different urban infrastructures impact uh, how people move around and what communities are most impacted. And that's exactly right. As we look at, as urban historians, if we look at where highways go, where we have historically put infrastructure, you know, not only are we talking about most of the time dividing brown and black communities by infrastructure, whether that's rail lines or whether that's highways, we're also talking really specifically about the, the long-term impacts that has on these communities. And so when we think of hard infrastructure, we can look at examples right now going on in the city where, you know, affordable housing is being pushed out to make room for more interstates. And traffic is a real problem, and especially traffic from these far-flung suburbs. But the flip side is that comes at the expense of communities who are already living here in town, who have been living here for decades. Um, and how to navigate that, you know, at the end of the day, there, there's only so much highway that can get built. <laughs> there's only so much that can be expanded. And we are going to have to think very seriously about what public transit's role is in this space and, and 
how to build public transit that makes sense both for the urban core to improve walkability, to improve the ability to exist in Houston, you know, especially with the expensive cars, um, as we continue to see that growing, as we as we see Gen Z being the least uh, car enthusiastic culture in history, that more and more members of younger publics are really thinking they don't want a car, they don't even want a driver's license. Being able to get comfortably around this city uh, in the urban sections is important, but it's also going to be critically important for those thriving suburbs who will continue to need ways to get easily in and out of the city and come into the city. And so we had, you know, I, I, I apologize that we, we lost some of the recording footage there, but that was a little taste of some of the fascinating conversation we had around these ongoing questions around how we're thinking through public transit, what walkability means in that space, and what the future of Houston looks like. The good news is I am very excited to share that Sienna will be bringing us pieces on this over the coming weeks so we can continue to have conversations and we'll also be bringing on urban scholars and thinkers to continue to think about what does the urban design of, of our city mean from both an environmental standpoint but also a human standpoint because as we've talked about, these these are two linked things. Our, our environment Environment and our impact on it is equally impacted by the way that it shapes who we are and where we live. Okay, so we are rapidly entering the end of our conversation. I just want to say such a big thank you to Bryson, Jaden, and Sienna for joining us today. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you, and I, I'm looking forward to revisiting it as we continue to think about Houston urbanisms and environmental history and the way that these things are interrelated and really shaping both where we live but also where we're moving as a city. Um, so thank you all so much for being on. And so now we'll turn to Sienna, who has a really great clip for us, um, all about thinking about walkability in Houston and at the start of a series of segments, thinking about urban planning in Houston and the surrounding area. Thanks, Sienna. And now we'll turn over to Jaden, who will talk to us about how you can get involved around Houston this week or to sign up, and there are also a limited number of spots available, so head on over there now if you're interested. If you're looking for something over in the Galveston area, the Sweetwater Survey is a great way to monitor bird populations, migration patterns, habitats, and the overall health of the Galveston Bay. This takes place on the first Tuesday of every month from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. If you're interested, go to the Texas Master Naturalist website, select the Galveston chapter, and then contact Davis Clay for more information. Lastly, on the same website, you'll find the Pine Gully Bird Survey. Part of Houston's Audubon mission is to promote bird awareness and protection. You can help increase protection for these birds by observing various patterns seen in the birds in the Galveston area. If you're interested, um, it is the first Saturday of the month from 9 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. Click the link on the website to speak with someone regarding volunteering. Hopefully one of these opportunities will encourage you to take the leap and volunteer in your community this week. Thanks, Jaden. Up next time on Gulf Streams, the Port of Houston expansion, also known as Project 11. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave me a voicemail at 713-348-4081. That's 713-348-4081. Or email me at westont at rice.edu. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio, produced by Weston Twardowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana, audio engineer Rico Enriquez, so research support provided by Jaden Brayboyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the r and show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston. <laughs>